Um, well, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're all here. I'm so glad that you are uh, jumping into this conversation about friendship to the campuses. Happy uh, that you're with us as well to Waterford and Lake Mary, to the men and women of 33rd Street. We're so happy uh, that you're joining us together. And, and my hope is every time uh, on Sundays, every time we come together at, around God's word, that, that the things that are talked about here start conversation. But I'm really hoping that we're all engaging in conversation around friendship because it is something uh, that the scripture makes very clear is important, uh, but it's often neglected. And like, like last week, we looked at uh, the book of Proverbs. We're going to continue to kind of get wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And we saw that friendship is a choice. We saw that it's part of our design. We saw that it's something that we can't create. It has to be discovered because true friendship is built not around the friendship, but around a common purpose. Um, so I wanna, I wanna start by reading you something from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's another book like Proverbs uh, that's been attributed to King Solomon. I want you to listen to these words. This is Ecclesiastes 4, verses seven and eight. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. When it says he had neither son nor brother, the word brother actually, it doesn't mean sibling, it means friend. He had no friend. Solomon is describing a man who his whole life, he's put personal achievement over developing relationships. And then at the end of his life, to his absolute horror, he realizes that it's all been meaningless. If you have status, if you have power, if you have position or wealth, if you have achieved so much in your life, but you have no real relationships, your life is meaningless. Again, like I said last week, Solomon was writing in a time when family was everything. Careers didn't look like they look today. Uh, they, they weren't going out and, and forging careers apart from what their family business was. Yet it seems that the struggle has always existed between relationships and personal achievement. Even back in the day when everything was about your family, it still was a struggle or else Solomon wouldn't have addressed it. This week, um, a childhood friend of mine uh, passed away. And, and we weren't still close. Um, he, was, he was a neighborhood friend. He was the kid in the neighborhood who, who had the cool house with the, with the bonus room above the garage with the pool table and the big screen TV. Um, and we had actually lost touch uh, after high school. Uh, my family moved to a new house in a new neighborhood, and, and, and we just didn't keep up. Um, but I, I ran into him for the first time uh, about two years ago. I was... I was I was leading the marriage prep class here at Summit, and in walks Matt and his fiance, and I almost didn't recognize him because I think it had been 15 years since we saw each other. Um, and so they went through that course, and then as soon as they were done with the course, Matt uh, and, and his fiance got married, and they moved to Birmingham where Matt was taking a job as a doctor. He had just finished going through all of medical school and, and getting all that done, and he was ready to start his new life with his wife. Um, and shortly after they moved to Birmingham, he got sick. And for the last year, he's battled sickness, and on Monday night, he passed away. 
And I'm really sad uh, for his wife and for his mom and dad and his brother and sister. Um, and it, it's really, it's made me think this week about what kind of friend I am. And so really, today, I just want to kind of invite you into that examination, that kind of looking at, like, what kind of friend am I? It's a common saying, but it's true. To make friends, you first have to be a friend. Friendship starts with you, not with somebody else. So as I went through the book of Proverbs, I was looking for, like, what are the clues? What are the things that we need to be in order to be a good friend? The kind of friend God had in mind when he thought us up. And I really, I kind of saw four things over and over again. So I want us to look at these four things and kind of rate ourselves. How are we at being a friend? Now, I don't think it's helpful for us to try to evaluate how others are at being our friend. Because like I said, friendship starts with you, not someone else. To, to, To make a friend, you first have to be a friend. And so my encouragement is to not try to think, all right, is my friend being like that? No. Examine your own self. Look and say, like, am I being this kind of friend? Now, the four marks of true friendship all start with the letter C, um, which a couple weeks ago I promised I, I would, this would not be a thing in my preaching, uh, but I kind of liked it, so I'm doing it again. Um, so the four marks or the four C's of friendship are constancy, care, candor, and confession. Constancy, care, candor, and confession. So first up, constancy. What do I mean by that? Well, last week we looked at Proverbs 17, 17, which says, a friend loves at all time. Now, does this mean a friend uh, is with you all the time? No. In fact, Proverbs 25, 17 tells us, seldom set foot in your friend's house, too much of you, and he will hate you. Uh, So the Proverbs call it like it is, like they do not mince words. So, so that's not what Proverbs 17, 17 is saying. It isn't saying that a friend is with you at all times, but a friend is with you in all kinds of times. Good times, bad times, ordinary times, transitional times, challenging times, all kinds of times. The other proverb we looked at last week was Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. See, a friend sticks with you uh, so that you will not come to ruin. When you become a partner here at Summit, and we just, we just had partnership this week, uh, one of the things we say, we say we, uh, we commit to you as your church family that we won't let you wreck your life without a fight, without getting involved, without jumping into the mess, that we are committed to one another. Now, most people know us or want to know us because of something we can do for them, because we're useful to them. And most of the people we know, why do we know them? Because they're useful to us. Some people are useful for having a good time. Some people are useful for meeting other people, networking. Some people are are good for getting stuff done. And this is okay. This isn't bad, but let's call it what it is, or or rather call it what it's not. It's not friendship. It's what's known in the business realm as as a consumer-vendor relationship. If you're a consumer, you have a relationship with a vendor as long as that vendor meets your needs at an acceptable cost to you. 
I wrote, um, I wrote about this in an article I wrote for the New Summit magazine. And if you haven't gotten one yet, they're in the lobby. You should grab one. Um, I just, this one in particular has blown me away as I've read through it. I'm just amazed at all the things that God is doing through our family. Uh, so I encourage you to read it. But um, in my particular article, I talk about my oldest and longest lasting relationship is with the burger. Um, I made a covenant with the burger at a very young age. It, I think it started with the uh, the square burger from Wendy's, and 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 then as as I as I grew up, as I matured, as my palate um, changed over time, I, I I went to different burgers, like the Checkers Burger or the the Quarter Pounder with cheese and no onions. Or remember the first time you had a Five Guys? I mean, I mean, gosh, right? So good. Um, and then and then I moved to LA and I discovered In and Out, which I, I pray every day that we will get an In-N-Out here in Orlando. And I know y'all maybe think that's dumb, but I also prayed for a Shake Shack. So (laughs) don't underestimate the power of prayer. Um, But even though I'm committed to the burger, I'm not committed to a burger. Studies are showing more and more that the model of the marketplace, this consumer-vendor relationship, has spread out beyond just food and consumer products and the things that we buy, but it's becoming the primary way in which we conduct all relationships. Family relationships, marriages, friends, relationships with a particular church. Uh, Being a member of a particular body of Christ more times than not is based on a cost analysis benefit. And this trend becomes even more obvious when things go wrong when things are falling apart in our lives, when the chips are down, when we're starting to collapse, when it's going to take huge amounts of involvement and time to stay close in relationship with us, a lot of people will say to us, call me if you need anything. But a friend is just there. My best friend uh, is also my brother-in-law. I always wanted a brother. I prayed often that God would give me a brother, and he gave me two sisters who are awesome and who I love, but I really wanted a brother. Well, in Nick, I I believe God has answered that prayer. In fact, uh, I call him my brother. That's how he's listed in my phone. Um, And as I was working on this sermon, I thought about him a lot, and I thought about the moment he became my best friend. Uh, We were friends in high school. We were dating sisters, so we hung out a lot. Uh, But I wouldn't have necessarily said he was my best friend. But when I was 18, my world was disrupted by tragedy. And Nick was there. And Nick stayed. And when everything was falling apart, and when I thought I was going to fall apart, and and when I I did want to wake up in the morning, and and to wake up in the morning was to just be devastated that there was a new day. Like, I I just wanted to go to sleep and not wake up. But when I would wake up, the first thing I would do is I would look and try to find Nick's shoes that were set down by the other twin bed. Because when I saw his shoes, I knew that I wasn't alone in the pit. I knew that I had a best friend. Friendship is marked by constancy. A friend loves in all kinds of times. A friend says, I will do whatever it takes to keep you from falling into the pit. I won't let you hit rock bottom. But if you do, if you end up there, I'm going to jump in after you and I'll stay there with you. And when you're ready to get out, I'll figure out a way to climb out with you. Are you that kind of friend? Are you the kind of friend in which the relationship, there's constancy, 
there's a commitment that says no matter what, in all kinds of times, no matter what the cost is to me, I'll be there. Or is it more of a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Secondly, care. We're going to look at two Proverbs here. The first is Proverbs 26, 18 through 19. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows in, in, let me say that again. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his friends and says, I was only joking. When I read that, I can't help but, uh, but hear something Ellen DeGeneres said in one of her stand-up specials about how people think when they say, I'm only kidding, um, that that gives them license to say really horrible things to you. And, uh, you know, like if you were to say to someone, did you get a haircut? I hope you didn't pay for that. I'm kidding, right? And, <laughs> and, and you're kind of left there thinking like, well, you don't really you don't really understand kidding because we should both be laughing, right? And, and that's really what this proverb is teaching. It's saying you don't know someone's inner topography. You don't know their, their story, their personality, their sensitivities enough to know that this joke actually hurts them. In fact, it's kind of like a deadly arrow. See, there's an emotional disconnect between you and that person. The other proverb I want us to look at is Proverbs 25:20. It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. In this proverb, you see that the person isn't emotionally tuned in enough to know that singing a song of joy in this moment will hurt someone. And in fact, it would be like being out in a blizzard without a coat. See, both these proverbs are talking about a lack of emotional care a lack of the kind of care that comes from being emotionally connected. See, it's because of lack of care that we often say trite things in the midst of someone's suffering. Like, like look, look you, don't, you lost your job and you don't have work. Well, at least you can sleep in or, um, or look on the bright side. At least you still have one eye, right? So, I mean, like, that's, that's not very helpful. Uh, and this can also happen with Scripture. Sometimes we use Scripture in, unhurtful, in, in uncaring and hurtful ways. I love Romans 8, 8. For God um, works all things together for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. But I'm not going to say that to my friend when he finds out he has cancer. When Aaron Moore came and spoke at our 60-minute seminars a couple summers ago on anxiety and depression, he talked about how when we are around someone who's suffering, we often feel very helpless, like we don't know what to do. And he says it's, it's in fact, in our helplessness they were actually the closest to empathizing with their suffering. But in an effort to try to alleviate our own discomfort, we speak. So we speak and we say things not for their sake, but to alleviate our own discomfort with the situation. See, true friendship cares in the discomfort. True friendship just is there and is silent at times. It's being connected emotionally so that when your friend is sad, you can't sing happy songs. I once heard someone say, once you start having kids, you realize that you're, for the rest of your life, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Why is that? Because whether you like it or not, you are emotionally connected to them. You can't sing songs when your child's heart is heavy. And friendship... Again, like we saw last week, it's always a choice. 
and friendship, we give that gift of that kind of emotional connection voluntarily. That's care. In friendship, you can't go around singing songs when your friend is heavy hearted. You can't go about doing your job when your friend is collapsing. That's one of the reasons you can't have many true friends, maybe three or five, because no one can survive that kind of emotional connection with too many people. But those we give that gift to, it is a gift. It's a holy gift, and it's a gift worth protecting. The reason we have so many problems with boundaries is not because we voluntarily given the gift of emotional connection. It's because we don't realize it's a gift that can only be given to a few. As a friend, have you given that kind of care voluntarily? Or are you a friend that's been so spread thin because you're trying to be all things to all people that you haven't given that gift to anyone? So to be a true friend, there has to be some constancy, this commitment. There has to be care that's given voluntarily and an emotional connection. And thirdly, there has to be candor. Proverbs 25 verses 5 and 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. True friendship must be built around telling the truth or candor. In the TV show, Stranger Things, Mike tries to explain to his new mysterious friend, Eleven, what friendship means. And he says this, friends tell each other the truth and they definitely don't lie to each other. If you're a friend and you're afraid to say what needs to be said, then in fact, you're not really a friend. In the proverb I just read, the first verse talks about this hidden love. And it's contrasting two different types of people. It says uh, open rebuke and hidden love. And so it's talking about a person who speaks the truth against a person who, who thinks they're loving by hiding the truth, by not saying anything. It's the person who says, I love that person too much to hurt them with the truth. But then the verse that follows it, that parallels it, says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Hiding, covering up the truth out of love in the first verse is paralleled by what the enemy does in the verse that follows. And this device of parallelism is often used in Hebrew poetry and especially in Proverbs to make a point vividly clear. And the point that, the, that, that's being made here is that love that doesn't speak the truth is the same as the kiss of an enemy. It's just as bad as Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. If you say, I love this person too much to tell them the truth, what you are in fact saying is I love myself too much to go through that. You have to speak the truth in order to be a good friend. Proverbs 29.5 says, whoever flatters his friend is spreading a net for his feet. What does this mean? Well, instead of telling your friend something that you see that's wrong with him or her so that he or she can get an accurate view of themselves, you're setting them up for a disastrous life as much as if you were putting their foot in a bear trap. Because you see, we all make decisions based on, on what we think we are or who we think we are. And without friends who speak the truth to us, our view of ourselves is always inaccurate. 
We need each other to speak truth to ourselves in order for us to get a clear view of who we actually are. And so if we don't have that picture, we're going to make one disastrous choice after the other. That's why the, the first few weeks of a, of a competition television show like The Voice and So You Think You Can Dance, they, they're counting on the fact that many people in this world don't have real friends, right? They're betting on people showing up to the auditions with confidence in a talent they don't have. Why do they have that false confidence? Because they have no friends, right? No one told them the truth. Now, it's important to connect candor with care. You can't be a friend without both. So if candor is, I'm telling you the truth, care is, I'm so emotionally connected to you that the painful words that I'm about to share with you are going to actually create pain for me as well. That's why it's hard to be a friend. You can either have care for someone and just shut up, or you can have candor and walk away. But true friendship has both. The playwright uh, George Bernard Shaw said, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh or they'll kill you. Um, and I really like that quote. I, I like that quote because I don't want care and candor to seem like you always have to be weeping as you speak the truth. And in light of the proverb about joking, I don't want us to get the idea that the Bible is down on humor, that, that, that there's no place for humor, that it's not an important part of friendship. Because there's a kind of humor that comes from humility. See, if we face the reality that we are imperfect, that we're broken people who, who don't have it all together, and then as Christians, we know we're still loved anyway, we can address the things that we see in each other that, that aren't good sometimes with laughter. I do a weekly radio show with my mentor, Steve Brown, and, and we laugh a lot on the show. Uh, the show doesn't take itself very seriously, uh, but uh, it's played on Christian radio stations across the country, most of which take themselves very seriously. Um, and because of that, uh, he gets a lot of critical letters. People are always upset. They're always saying to him, you take sin too lightly. You're, not, you're, you're making light of it. And his response is always, I don't take sin lightly. In fact, I take sin so seriously that sometimes all I can do is laugh. How he usually responds to his critics is he tells them a story. He always has a story to tell, and sometimes you've heard the story several times, but he, he tells them a story, and this is the story he usually tells. He says, uh, there was a man who went to his yearly physical, and the doctor told the man, Mr. Jones, your health is very good. In fact, there is no reason you can't live a normal life as long as you don't try to enjoy it. Then Steve says, we as Christians often sound a lot like that doctor. We say, now that you have been forgiven from all your sins and you're sure of heaven and you know now that your life has meaning and you've found great power in prayer, you ought to be able to live a normal Christian life as long as you don't try to enjoy it. Of course, how we live is important. Biblical truth is important. Facing the dangers of sin is important, but that doesn't exclude laughter from it. In fact, it includes it. It transforms it, it sanctifies it, it even glorifies it. So as we speak the truth to one another, it needn't always be with tears. Sometimes it's with laughter because in spite of everything, we're still loved. And how ridiculous is that? So how are you doing at telling truth to your friends? Is there candor? Do you speak hard truth? Do you speak hard truth with tears and with laughter? 
or are we going to see your buddy on the voice one day, right? Lastly, confession. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends confess sins to each other. Friends are accountable to one another. Accountability has been a, a buzzword in Christian culture for some time. And, and because of that, and maybe rightly so, many of us have a negative reaction to it. But accountability is absolutely necessary in friendship. And I, and I found a, a definition of accountability that I really liked. It said this, accountability is being honest with trusted friends about our temptations, our sins, and the state of our hearts. This is such a good definition. Confession is not just limited to, to how we are being tempted or, or the behaviors that have resulted from us succumbing to that temptation, but we should confess where our heart is at. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Sin starts in our hearts. Before we ever fall into temptation and sin, something happens in our hearts. The preacher Charles Spurgeon says sin is like an acorn. Inside an acorn, a little tiny acorn, is everything necessary for a giant oak tree. In fact, because an oak tree has thousands of acorns, inside every acorn is everything necessary for an entire forest of oak trees. Now think about sin. Think about a particular sin. Think about a particularly grievous sin. Think about murder. How does murder start? It doesn't start with murder. It starts with a single thought in one's heart. I hate this person. Or this person is in my way. Or this person is getting in the way of my happiness. Or I want what this person has and I deserve it. And so I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Now, most of the time, this thought, a thought that we've all had, like acorns, falls in a place where the conditions aren't right for a full-grown oak tree to grow. The acorn falls on the sidewalk or gets stomped on or smashed, but sometimes an acorn falls in just the right soil. If we're the kind of friends we're called to be, we're the sidewalk or we're the foot that smashes the acorn. But in order to do that, we have to know our friend's heart and they have to know ours. Spurgeon says, in our hearts is an entire forest of evil, which coincidentally was the name of Andy's death metal band in high school, um, followed by Crushed Acorn. But um, we are so good at avoiding this last mark of a, of a friendship, of confession. We have a number of ways that we don't confess. Sometimes we just blatantly avoid it. When friends start opening up and, and sharing and getting personal, we shut up. Maybe we're the consummate good listener. We're always the one asking questions. Or we play the we game. When we talk about sin, we use the word we. We use our, our, our confession of sin in communal language. Like 
you know how it is when, when we're tired and, and we feel like we aren't winning at work. And so we get online just to get a break. And then we click on something without really thinking about it because our defenses are down, because, because we've had a hard week. That's not a confession. That's a homily. That's what I do, right? I try to use communal language up here. A homily uses we. A confession uses I. It says, I, I am struggling with this. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. When was the last time you had a conversation like that? If you sin as much as I do, or if your heart is capable of having within it an entire forest of evil like mine is, then you shouldn't have to think long and hard about when you had that last conversation. But as I was working on this sermon, I realized that I did. I hadn't had a conversation like that in a while. Another way we avoid true confession is we wait. We confess after we've had about a week of doing really good. And in doing that, what we're really doing is we're, we're confessing not to invite someone into our struggle, but to invite them into our celebration of victory. I've often wondered if King David's story would have turned out differently if his best friend Jonathan hadn't died before he met Bathsheba. If you don't know the story, it's found in 2 Samuel 11, but the Cliff Notes version is this. King David um, had an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba. Um, but actually, when I, when I read the story, it seems more uh, like a power play. It seems more like, uh, like an assault. Um, but whatever the case is, um, he had a relationship with Bathsheba and she got pregnant. And in order to cover up their sin, in order to cover up their adultery, because Bathsheba's husband was actually at war, he was at war fighting for David. Not only that, Bathsheba's husband was one of David's good friends. He was, he was one of the men who, when David was running for his life, he was protecting him. Uh, David decided in order to cover up his own sin, that he would make sure that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was purposely killed on the battlefield. Now, in Scripture, David is called a man after God's own heart. But he was still a man. He was still broken and fallen like all of us, and within his heart was a forest of evil. Now, what if Jonathan, his best friend, had still been alive? Let me tell you about Jonathan. Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan was a life-changing friend for David. You see, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, the first king of Israel and a really horrific king. I mean, he made Macbeth look nice. And David, after killing uh, the giant Goliath and, and saving God's people, something that King Saul had not been able to do, all of a sudden, David became King Saul's enemy. Saul hunted David. Saul wanted David dead. The thought of David being more loved by God's people drove Saul completely mad and crazy. But Saul's son, Jonathan, loved David. He took off his robe, which meant in order to be friends with David, he gave up his right to the throne. And he took off his sword and gave it to David, essentially saying, I will serve you even if it means dying for you. 
and eventually Jonathan would. Why did he do that? Why did Jonathan do this? Well, I think Jonathan had a picture of what God had in mind when he thought up David. And Jonathan made a commitment. He made a covenant with David. He chose friendship with David, even knowing it meant sacrifice. We read Proverbs 27, 6 earlier, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Another translation says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And in the context, as we looked at it, we saw that it's talking about criticism and candor and speaking the truth to one another. It's saying faithful are the wounds inflicted by a friend. But when we see David's friend, Jonathan, we see him stripping himself of his royalty. We see him stripping himself of his sword, becoming vulnerable and ultimately dying so that David could become king. When we look at the friendship of Jonathan and David, we see faithful are the wounds endured by a friend. David was saved, literally. His life was saved by the wounds of his friend, Jonathan. David became king by the wounds of his friend, Jonathan. David became who God made him to be through the wounds of his friend, Jonathan. David might be a man after God's own heart, but Jonathan looks a whole lot more like Jesus. Jesus took off his robe. Jesus lost his throne. Jesus laid down his sword and became vulnerable to us, ultimately dying so that we could be who we were always meant to be. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we become a friend. By his wounds, we become who we were always meant to be. In order to make a friend, you have to be a friend. So how are you at being a friend? If I had to take the four C's of friendship and, and narrow them down into just two, if I were, if I were to take the four C's, constancy, uh, care, candor, or candor, candor. That sounds like something from, you know, Star Wars. Um, constancy, care, candor, and confession. And I were to make those into just two. I would say friendship lets you in and doesn't let you down. Candor and confession is about letting you in. Constancy and care is about not letting you down. Now, we'll never do all of that perfectly. In fact, there was only one perfect friend. But as you and I, as we take steps towards letting people in, as we take steps towards not letting people down, we are being transformed into the perfect friend for the sake of others. So what step do you need to take? Do you need to take a step further into letting people in or do you need to step, take a step further in, into not letting people down, committing to one another? Maybe it's having a hard conversation this week that involves tears or laughter or both. Or maybe it's apologizing for a hard conversation that, that didn't have tears or laughter. Maybe it's confessing. Maybe it's opening up and not just sharing what you struggle with, not just sharing how you've messed up, but sharing your heart. Where's your heart at? Or maybe it's just being there. Maybe this week you have a friend who just needs to wake up and see your shoes sitting there. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you that, uh, that you've given us friendship and that you didn't mean for us to do this life alone. And so, Father, I, I don't know what each of our next steps are as far as friendship goes, but I know that in taking them, we will look more and more like the perfect friend, like you, Jesus, who is our perfect friend. So make it clear to us. Make it clear to each one of us how we can move towards one another and the kind of friendship that we see in Jonathan and ultimately the kind of friendship we find in you. And we pray all this in your wonderful and redeeming and loving name, Jesus. Amen.